Um, but would you have any particular prayer request? There are some students who are missing. Um, granddaughter is missing. She is she is in Kansas, I believe, as a counselor for a group of seventh and eighth grade girls. So pray for her, okay? I can't make too many jokes, you know. You ladies will slap me silly afterwards, you know, but... Yeah, let's pray for that. The weather, got it. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, yeah, the weather looks like we're going to be okay. No major ice coming in. Well, yeah, yeah, wear your coat tomorrow, you know, tomorrow morning. But let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll get started with this session. Father, we are just so thankful for, for you and the fact that you've revealed yourself to us. Father, thank you for that Sunday school teacher years and years ago who sought to teach me the basic truths of who you are and why you came and my human condition. Father, I thank you for the human instrument that you used as the Holy Spirit convinced me of the truth that I was hearing, that I was lost, and that I needed you and by faith came to you. Thank you, Father, for your grace gift to us. Lord, we pray that we would be found faithful in sharing that hope with people who are blind and lost, praying that your spirit would open their eyes to see and their ears to hear. Help us to be faithful stewards of the truth you've given to us. And for those who aren't here, uh, Lord, whether they're just on an adventure or whether they are as Tiffany counseling, we pray, Lord, that you would give them wisdom and may they not be unintentional in their, in their desire to continue just to, to honor you in the way they live. In your name, amen. Okay, this one is on the limits of human research and it's kind of like, boy, these questions kind of fit so closely together you could almost fit several of them together. Rather than doing that, we've kind of broken them up a little bit, but this will cover two questions. Two questions, question number five and question number six. Question number five in the theology exam, explain the doctrine of common grace as it relates to the limitations of secular psychologists in understanding the true information about the human condition. Question number six is explain the doctrine of the Noahic effects of sin as it relates to the limitations of secular psychologists in understanding true information about the human condition. And um, really those questions overlap and that's why we put them together. So again, if you have questions afterwards, why you can um, read through the material, and, and if you have time, ask us, and we'll be glad to try to help you out with it. Okay. Technology is inter interesting. 
I think that it's sometimes demon possessed, but nonetheless. Yeah, yeah. The limitations of human research, the common grace and noahic effects of sin. Doesn't that sound like oatmeal? You know. There you go. There you go, Lorraine. I do too, if it's got a little bit of uh, maple, you know, flavoring in it or a little bit of brown sugar or whatever it is. Okay. Initial considerations. One is be sure to define what common grace is. Be sure you define it. The question would be is how can God continue to give blessings to sinners who don't believe who don't deserve it? And the answer is common grace. Sinners enjoy countless blessings, live long lives. How can that be? <laughs> Common grace. Humans are rebellious and use their giftedness for self-centered, evil purposes. How in the world can God tolerate such evil? Common grace. <laughs> that's, that's the bottom line. Common grace is the grace of God in which he gives people innumerable blessings that are not a part of salvation. They're beyond. The word common here means something that's common to all people. So it's like general revelation. It's common to everybody. It's not restricted to believers or the elect, as Grudem would suggest. Matthew 5, I don't know how you could, you could discuss common grace without Matthew 5, 44 and 45. So you want to become familiar with what that says. You've heard it said. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. And again, you want it in his context. That's who God is. That's how gracious he is. That's how merciful he is. So you ought to be in people who don't deserve it, people who are just flat evil. Um, how do you respond to them? How do you respond to them? And again, it doesn't mean that you overlook it and you encourage them, right? It doesn't mean that at all. The examples of common grace could be our physical well-being. Um, common grace is most of us, most of us, most of the time experience health. That'd be common grace. Um, intellectual, intellectually, God blesses. God blesses. Some of us have to work a little harder to get to the conclusions than others. Others are sharp thinkers. There are sharp thinkers out there amongst unbelievers. Um, they just come to wrong conclusions, but nonetheless, it's common grace. Society in general, creative, general morality, it's built into people. Generally, there's a morality that's there. Even, even uh, mentally limited individuals that are, <clears throat> that just just are struggling 
to be able to do things that usually people are able to do. I hesitate to call the average person because there's a sense in which they're not abnormal, but in general we would look at them. And there is a sense of morality. There is a sense of morality. Um, I was always interested in... Uh, I won't chase that rabbit. Okay. Secondly, <laughs> we'll have time for stories later. How does this apply to psychology? Do psychologists see true things about humans? Can they understand true information about the human condition? And can they fully understand the human condition? Now, those terms are loaded, and they're purposefully loaded to get you to think, okay? Example of things that theorists have observed. One is, did you know that, again, when I teach psychology, I continually have to explain to the students that there is mainstream psychology. Those are the theorists. Those are the philosophers. Those are the individuals who begin with a worldview that denies God, trying to find answers to the human condition outside of divine revelation. Okay, they're the theorists. They're mainstream. Downstream, you have people who are psychologists, and you could say they believe everything and anything uh, because there, there isn't an absolute for them. And some of them are Christians who've integrated and they're just, yeah, they're just moving all over the place. Um, so what I'm saying to you is about psychology, I'm talking about mainstream upstream. So you may run across, in my experience, ran across a psychiatrist who you would think, boy, he would be steeped in this. But he was fascinated with biblical counseling. He even loved John Broger's book, Self-Confrontation Manual. If you're familiar with it, I mean, it is cut and dry biblical counseling in a structured format. And uh, he was fascinated by it. He thought it was a great thing, you know. I'm not so sure, but what his thinking wasn't pragmatic in that if it works, you know, we'll try it because it seems to work. But nonetheless, so when I'm saying the theorist, I'm talking about the upstream theorist for the most part. I'm not talking about individuals who are your friends or your uncle, your cousin, who may look different than the upstream psychologist. But I know where the streams, I know where the water's coming from, <laughs> and I know it's coming downstream. And so I know where the thinking's coming from. Men and women have a problem with evil. Do you know that that's a common observation amongst psychologists? That men and women have a problem with being evil and have a problem with doing good. It's an interesting observation, yeah. But they fail to understand the nature of man, his sinful nature. Okay. So again, common grace, yes, they can reason. Abraham Maslow, which is was always interesting to me when we studied Maslow's theory, um, his pyramid. Maslow observed monkeys, and as observing monkeys, he he thought, you know what, this is similar to to people, in that they have this higher order, this hierarchy of needs, 
And so if these needs aren't met, they can't move on to the next level. So there's this level of needs. And he observed that human beings in general need air and water and food. Well, then he added one, sex, which nobody ever died, right, from lack of sex. Come on, you know. But his, but his needs, that's the way he looked at them. And what I'm saying to you is, yes, they can make observations. But do you understand, if you bought all of what he's selling, what you'd have to buy? You know, Sigmund Freud, Sigmund Freud observed that he, he theorized that men and women were driven by these instinctual subconscious forces. Okay. Now, did he understand the biblical concept of the heart that drives men and women? No. But he did see something. <laughs> There's something about human beings. In fact, as Sigmund Freud said, Sigmund Freud said to his friend, uh, Feister, he said, uh, from my observations, most of them are trash, talking about his counselees, his clients. So I just thought it was fascinating to go to a counselor who thought you was just trash. <laughs> but right, I mean, it's an observation. Uh, he can make an observation, but is it, a, it is, a, is it a true observation? What about those who observed what appears to be the effects of low self-esteem, right, which is really permeated I mean, a whole culture, a whole generation has grown up thinking that their main problem was they don't love themselves, right? What are they observing? What are they observing? When Scripture plainly says, your goal in life is to what? The greatest commandment is to what? Love God. How? With all your being and to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, that as yourself is as the same way you already love yourself. That's the assumption Jesus makes. His assumption is that people's problem is not that they love themselves less. He's saying the problem is you love yourself too much. You ought to love God and others like you love yourself. Now, either Jesus is wrong in his observation about the human condition, or modern psychology is incorrect in what they're observing, what they're observing, calling it. What about the reality that there are literally hundreds of different theories seeking to explain and treat human conditions? Do you realize that there are over 350 different theories of human personality therapies to treat people. Do you realize that? Do you realize again, and I'm not, I'm not trying to be mean-spirited, but do you realize then the DSM, the DSM-5-TR, the latest edition, that they have all these diagnoses, these criteria to diagnose mental disorders and so on, and there's not one single treatment for any of them mentioned in the DSM. Do you know why there's no treatment methods mentioned? 
because there really isn't any agreement in how to treat them. There isn't a solution. So when you're saying, and I'm not suggesting that everything mentioned in the DSM is an absolute farce or a misconstruction because there are some things in there that, that we're, we have to, as biblical counselors, grapple with in the relationship between what is physical and what is spiritual, um, what is medical and, and what is not medical. But what I am saying is, is that, is that if, if you're looking to psychology to come up with better observations and conclusions, you'll have to screen the observation and you'll have to watch carefully the conclusion. That's what I'm saying. It is said in the textbook, one of the textbooks that I used in earlier years, which was a secular textbook, I wanted the students to hear what psychology was saying rather than to hear me tell them what it says. Um, I want them to hear it. That book said this, that if you're wanting to be a psychologist, you must learn to live with ambiguity. And again, if any of you are psychology majors and, and whatever are going into psychology, again, I'm just saying to you, this is what the discipline is saying about itself. Um, you have to live with ambiguity. That means you're not really going to know if it's right because you don't know. It's best guess. It's best guess. That's the best that they can do. Do you realize that there isn't any single authority when we're talking about common grace and the observations of psychology, that there isn't any, any criterion on which this counselor can gauge his, his uh, uh, claims of truth against another one? Because you have five different perspectives, and you had this in the basics, so you, you remember it, right? Yeah. When Kevin went through the comparison of the philosophies, you have five perspectives. Basically, there are those upstream psychologists who believe that basically your behavior is medical, it's biological, it's neurological, it's your chemistry, it's the neural firings in your brain, it's the way your nerves conduct. You are a product of your biology. Okay. Then you have over here the, the, the perspective that's in opposition to it, which is behavioralism. Behavioralism says, no, it's not your body chemistry. It's your outer man behavior. They wouldn't call it outer man. They would just call it your, it's your behavior. You are a victim of your surroundings. You are conditioned, classical conditioning, operant conditioning. What are those theories? What are they driving at? They're driving at the fact that you're not responsible. You are conditioned. Sometimes by your own choosing, you're conditioned to behave the way you behave. So you've got that over here. You've got the cognitive perspective here that says it's in the way you process life. It's the way you process things. And then you have the humanist, the humanistic over here, which says you have to work up this graduated scale, in a sense, to, to become self-actualized. It's all about me. It's the only one who really has choice. The rest of them, uh, you don't really have a choice. The psychodynamic, of course, would be Freud. Freud would say that you're driven by these subconscious theories. Do you understand that when they're arguing amongst themselves these various theories, there's no gauge as to how they fit together, see? And that's why we're suggesting strongly to you that yes, 
they can make some great observations, but you better watch how they're observing it. But secondly, in the conclusions, you better be very careful when you pick up the conclusions, you see. You need to know where the stream is flowing from before you drink out of it, you know. <laughs> make sure it's not polluted waters. Okay, so um, it's true that many observations are made by keen minds in the world of psychology. But it's also true that there's many wrong interpretations. Do you realize that there's a neuroscientist who says that your, your brain chemistry changes before you make a decision? And he says he can prove that through the neurological firings of the brain. You're talking a millisecond, but he's convinced that the theory is right. So he's suggesting that nobody has a free will. But he can show you the brain scans thinking. Do you follow me? I mean, it's, 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 it's interesting stuff. I kind of liken it to the poem, The Blind Man and the Elephant. Were you required to read that when you were in school? I had to read. You know, there's some things that you remember from grade school. I remember The Blind Man and the Elephant. Found it on the internet not too long ago. Um, put it into a couple of my lectures because I think it's fascinating. Let me wax eloquent for you, okay? Break the monotony of, of just plain oatmeal uh, just for a second or so. The blind men and the elephant. It was six men of Indostan to learning much inclined who went to see the elephant, though all of them were blind, that each by observation might satisfy his mind. The first approached the elephant, and happening to fall against his broad and sturdy side, at once began to bawl. God bless me. But the elephant is very much like a wall. The second feeling of the tusk cried, Ho, what have we here? So very round and smooth and sharp, to me tis mighty clear. This wonder of an elephant is very much like a spear. The third approached the animal and happening to, to take the squirming trunk within his hands, thus boldly up and spake, I, quoth he, the elephant is very like a snake. The fourth reached out an eager hand and felt about the knee. What most, what must, <laughs> what most this wondrous beast is like is mighty plain, quoth he. Tis clear enough, the elephant is very much like a tree. The fifth who chanced to touch the ear said, even a blindest man can tell what this resembles most. Deny the fact who can. This marvel of an elephant is very like a fan. The sixth no sooner had begun about the beast to grope when seizing on the swinging tail that fell within his scope. I see, quoth he, the elephant is very like a rope. And so these, blind, these men of Indostan disputed long and loud and long, each in his own opinion, exceeding stiff and strong, though each was partly right and all were in the wrong. <laughs> I mean, did, did Freud see something in human nature that made him think that there was something driving that was evil? The subconscious, what was it? He had no clue. He didn't understand human nature. 
Is there something about the way we process life, the way we believe our worldview? We would say as believers, yes, indeed, yes, indeed. But they don't understand the biblical concept of the heart and what drives. Do you follow me? I mean, you could go through all those all those, they are so close. Yes, they make some observations. Another example would be to look around and see creation and observe it. When you and I look around and we see the beautiful sunrise or the sun setting, what do you say? Isn't God great? Isn't this a marvelous thing? You see, you see, lizards and snakes and reptiles and things that look similar and you look at it and and you see these commonalities in the animal kingdom and you just simply say what a marvelous creator and his design as he produced all these creatures with marvelous workings and so on and the evolutionist without a biblical worldview looks at the sunrise and sunsets and has to say something like what a beautiful spot of pollution you know what a what a what a marvel of evolution you know uh, it's 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 amazing it's amazing to me and again uh to think about your nervous system isn't connected did you know that that's the synapse so your nerves have a synapse which is the space between your neurons your nerve cells did you know that and that the nerve cells communicate with each other through neurotransmitters, and that's where a lot of the medications and drugs and so on affect people is in there. And I'm teaching through that, and I'm thinking to myself, you know, what a marvelous creator, marvelous. How can you look at the intricacies of the human body and suggest that this was happenstance? Got to be kidding me. You get more faith. Okay, all right, enough of my... Your worldview will influence the way you think and the way you critique and interpret life around you. And so it is with the worldview. Listen, there isn't an exception, an acceptance of a biblical worldview in mainstream psychology. It's just not there. Any of the textbooks that I've ever purchased from mainline producers of introdu introduction to psychology for universities and colleges, every single one of them, there is no mention of religion unless it's in a sense of neurosis. Why is that? There is no voice. I'm, I am simply saying when it comes to, do I think, do I think that, that secular psychology is limited in its ability? I'm saying, yes, I strongly believe that they're limited in their ability. It's not that their minds aren't sharp, okay, and they don't observe things. They just can't come to the right conclusions because they don't accept Man needs a word from God. Man has always needed a word from God. It's always needed a word from God. We need an instrument outside ourselves to be able to help us navigate life and understand life. We need that. 
God created us to need a word from him. As the airplane flies or the pilot flies, and I've told you that illustration before, flies in the night, flies in the dark, flies in the fog, he has to depend on the instruments. And God created us to live for him, and he created us in that relationship. We need him, and we need his word. Psalm 119, 105, did I mark that? Um, I pulled the marker out of my Bible. 105. <laughs> yeah, again. Yeah, brain dead. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Why didn't I remember that? Age. Age will do that to you. The entrance of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple one. 130. Yeah, yeah. We, we need that light. Uh, Psalms 119. Think of the scriptures as your eyeglasses. So you're trying to critique life and interpret life through the lens of, of, God's, of God's word. Yeah. Without the lens of the scripture, again, you may be able to make some observations, but they're not consistently going to be accurate outside of God's word. So why all the big fuss? Why all the big fuss? And again, I hope that you already understand why there's such a big fuss. Uh, where do you go when you're a counselor? Who do you look to for truth? Who do you rely on? What do you rely on? What resources do you look to in order to find the answers? And that's where the, that's where the big issue is. Uh, why such a big fuss? And that is this issue is critical. And that is that human beings are limited. Um, they are limited in their ability. Common grace has many benefits of grace, okay, but it'll never replace, nor is it capable of replacing God revealing himself to us through his word. It will never replace that. Um, and again, I think that we just have to resolve that as, as our world, as a culture in general, slips further and further away from a biblical, the un, biblical underpinnings, even of some of the common observations that were made by the, the secular world, now that's almost completely erased. And, and as it slips, they're going to, in general, see us as being more weird than in the past. So don't, don't think it's strange and don't get a chip on your shoulder or whatever it is. You have the truth and you have the light and the power of the Holy Spirit and his word that changes lives. So there's nothing less about the power of God and, and his word to want and desire to change lives, to share the gospel. We ought to be more empowered than ever um, to be motivated to do that. Okay. Uh, we must not conclude nor do I suggest that every observation made or conclusion that's made by psychology is wrong. Um, again, I've said for years that even a broken clock is right at least twice a day. Can't say that anymore because most clocks are digital. But do you remember when the big hand was on and the little hand was, uh, okay, yeah, at least twice a day a broken clock would be, be right. 
Yeah, it's kind of like the Reader's Digest. You know, I mean, surely somewhere in those wordings they're going to say something that is correct. And, that, and that's, that's some of those observations are. Okay. And again, I think the big issue is, is did you remember from the last session that this concept that there's two books, that you could find truth out here in science and research, though let's take the definition off the shelf. Let's take general revelation and let's say, for example, they're not really talking about general revelation. They're just talking about truth that can be discovered. Well, it's not revelation. Okay. Would you put the two books equal? How can you verify this? And in this, you have to say best guess, right? The reliability of being able to replicate something is the greater probability that it's going to happen, right? That's the best science can do, where you have God's word rightly understood and rightly interpreted. That's where the human factor comes in, and we need to challenge each other to be honest with the text. Let the text say what it says. But when you have God speaking, you got a word from the Creator. Hey, listen, take it to the bank. That's it. So what are the effects of sin on human understanding? And Lorraine, this is where we define noetic, okay? What are the effects of sin? I mean, haven't you ever run across an individual that, that you said in your, in your mind, though you might not have said it to them, but in your mind, you said, how in the world can you have an IQ of 140 and think the way you're thinking? Or maybe you didn't say 140. Maybe you said something else. How can you be so smart and be so dumb? You know. Well, the noetic effects of sin can make that a reality. So, definition of noetic. Noetic actually comes from a Greek word, and it's noose or mind. Heath Lambert describes it, I think, very well when he says, Sin impacts how our mind works. This refers to the spiritual function of cog cognition. Because of our sinfulness, we do not think as we should. Theologians sometimes refer to this as the noetic effects of sin. Sin's corrupting influence on our thinking means that we can rationalize moral choices and make good things seem wicked and bad things appear to be acceptable. Proverbs 14, 12 would be a good one. There is a way that seems right. It seems right. All the reasoning in the world um, it just seems right. It's sin's effect. It's that blinding, that blindness of our own hearts. Ephesians 4, 17 through 20. Therefore, this I say and testify in the Lord, that you walk no longer as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their mind, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become calloused, have given themselves over to sensuality 
for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way. It's the noic effects of sin. Sin's damages our, our ability to think. It's, it, isn't it amazing that even amongst you and I as Christians, how easily our hearts self-justify our actions? <laughs> you know, I get into a tiff with my wife. I'm never wrong. I mean, she's the one. It's her attitude, you know, or whatever. How, how self-justifying our hearts are quick. Okay, all right. One more long passage, but Romans 1. How could we not mention this? For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, both his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Um, such were you and I, right? Yeah, before we came to Christ, hopefully no longer. There isn't any school or amount of education or cultural changing that will remove that damage, the reality of the noetic effects of sin. You can't get around it. Man is incapable outside divine intervention to think right. How do you know you're thinking right? That's according, of course, according to God's word. That's how you know it. All right. Why is an understanding of the noetic effects of sin important for sciences and psychological research in particular? And how does this relate to biblical counseling? Okay. First. First. Let's be honest, there's a big difference between hard science and soft science, right? Hard science seeks to replicate the reality of something. Study after study after study, they can replicate the same result. That's the idea behind science. The idea behind science is that everything that is real can be perceived through your senses, primarily sight and sound. I mean, yeah, sight and sound. Um, so that's the premise behind even the hard sciences. But when you get to psychology and understanding the human condition, do you realize now you've moved into what is recognized by the sciences as soft science? Because it's not something that can be replicated time and time and time again. If you Google the replication crisis of psychology, you'll find out that for the last 20, 25 years, there's been a crisis in psychology upstream. There's been a crisis. You know what the crisis is? A failure to be able to replicate the previous studies. They're flawed. So that brings into question those studies that are done. And in the last 10 years that they have tried to correct it, 
There have been little that's done. Do you know why there have been little that's done? Particularly because there isn't money in reproducing the old studies. You don't get funding to reproduce an old study. You get funding to produce a cutting-edge study. That's where you get the money. Secondly, understand this, that if there's a study that's published in a credentialed publication and it is later proved to be wrong, incorrect, or the reasoning is flawed, do you know that they do not have to retract that study? And do you know that those studies remain even after they've been retracted? and quoted as if they're gospel. Once it's published, it becomes like gospel. And, and flowing downstream, which wouldn't you accept the experts in the field if you were in the field? And the truth is yes, that's just the way it works. Okay, so when we're talking about the noahic effects of sin, you understand that there is a there is a lot of confusion and and I would encourage you to to put your put your energy into studying and understanding God's word and what God says about the human condition and the remedy and spend your efforts there rather than trying to understand all the upstream theorists and then trying to put it together on your own human ability to reason it's not going to it's not going to work um, I would expect that, that in this session by this time, you've already understood what the big concept is that's missing here in upstream psychology. The noetic effects of sin, yes, we've understood that. What's missing up here? And the thing that's missing up here is an awareness of we are created beings and that God has revealed himself through his word and man's problem is he's estranged from God because of sin, and he needs a Savior. Now, that doesn't mean that he, that he doesn't need to be able to respond to trauma. It doesn't mean that we, we just simply ignore a relationship that's splintered because one partner is left, you know, in a marriage. It doesn't mean that we neglect that sorrow and grief and suffering that's there because those things are real. But we are saying this, that it really starts. I mean, if you're going to have long-lasting change, it really starts with a heart right with God, moving in the right direction. Now, I may not immediately, if I have a couple coming in and the husband's lost and, and she's saved, I may not immediately start with a gospel, but I'm going to get there. You know, I can't help but get there if I'm going to help them long-term because that's that's the truth I can, I can bank on. So there are missing ingredients, missing ingredients that are key to understanding the human condition that you will never find here. Okay. There are some Christians who are saying that man has retained his ability to reason well after the fall, but without divine intervention and the direction of Scripture, that seems to violate my experience and my understanding of Scripture, that people reason well. 
they observe and they make observations. We're not denying that. It's just the conclusions, how they put those things together. Okay. Um, we must be assured that if we inform, oh, I, I know what I was doing. Um, in epistemology, um, another big word, okay. Um, Epistemology is how, how do you know the truth that you know? If I just mentioned four simple things, it's an easy way of kind of remembering it. Category of you just know, no, you don't inform yourself. It's, not, it's just something that you just know. You ever just have a gut instinct about something that's kind of that level of, of reliability? Um, I just know. Well, you just, sometimes you meet somebody and you say, you know what, I don't like them. Or maybe you say, you know what, there's something wrong with them. And then when you get to know them, they become your best friend. You, know, you ever have that happen? You know, your gut instinct is not always on target. It's, it's not, you wouldn't want to base your life on it. And do you know what? There are many in our culture who are basing their marriages, right? And their, their purpose in life bent and built on intuition or gut instincts or feelings. Then you have human reasoning, and that would be human reasoning informed by nothing other than your own thoughts. So you're listening to somebody and you say, you know what, that makes sense. That makes sense. And so you just reason it out. Well, your human reasoning you know, <laughs> sometimes can be flawed too. Then you have human reasoning informed by your past experiences. It's a little more reliable, right? You lean a little more heavy on that. You know, I've had my experiences. 40 years of counseling. And if I say to you, in 40 years of counseling, this is true, you take it with a grain of salt, right? Because 40 years of counseling doesn't make it true. It's just 40 years of experience. Now, I would expect that you would listen to me if I said in 40 years this is true, but you would take it with a grain of salt. Um, and then if I said to you, God's word says that man's greatest need is, do you see, that's where you put your weight and your trust. Okay. All right. Um, what else can I say about the noahic effects of sin? Sin permeates every aspect of our being, corrupting the mind and the will. So the natural tendency of our heart is to think according to the ways of the world. The hostile heart may search the scriptures and yet be completely closed to accepting the message of the scriptures. This was the case with the religious Jewish leaders of Jesus' day in John 5. When talking to the religious Pharisees, Jesus declared, Why do you not understand what I'm saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. And that's true of the unbeliever, is they don't have the ability to grasp the total significance of what God is saying. It's foolishness to them. It's weird. It's strange. It doesn't seem logical. That's the noahic effects of sin, okay? Um, the last statement that I have, and then I'll, I'll leave you with this, and that is a warning to Christians. We're born on a spiritual battlefield. 
we are the battlefield. And throughout our lives, we're going to face opposition to the work that God is seeking to do in your life. The enemy will do that through pleasure and pain, success and failure, through friends and enemies, anything to pull you away and to drag your attention away or stifle your walk with Christ. We even have our sin-damaged natures, right, that we contend with. Okay. It's the noetic effect of sin. I think you and I as, as counselors and as believers need to be very much aware of, of our, our propensity, if you please, our ability to make sinful choices, even as believers. I think John Piper had a, had a blog recently on uh, you, something about you are, are you as a believer capable of adultery? I think it was something shocking like that. And the truth is that if any of us think that we're not subject to moral impurity, you're blind. You're fooling yourself. Um, we have to be aware of, our, of the proneness of our own heart to wander. Given a chance, intentionally stay in the Word. Okay, it's 8-9. If I let you out on time, yes. Say it to me again, Courtney. For her son. Okay. Yes, yes, yes. Millie, Millie, God love her. You know, and, and um, yeah, pray for Millie. Pray for Millie. Um, as she raises those three boys, I'll tell you, they can be exciting. They can be excited. Let's do that, and they will be dismissed. Father, we love you, and what a privilege it is to bring Millie before you and to pray for her for wisdom and discernment, to pray for just the health and physical well-being of her son. And we pray that you'd give her wisdom as she deals with the circumstance and the situation, that you would provide the help that she needs, uh, Lord, during this time and for others who may be caring for them. We pray that you'd comfort her heart and Assure her, uh, Lord, of, of just determination and continuing determination to walk in truth for your glory, your glory alone in your name. Amen. Okay.